Back again with Securiosity, but first, we're coming up on it. FedScoop presents DC Cloud Week, a citywide festival bringing together thousands of government and tech leaders from around the nation to share how the cloud is transforming government, academia, nonprofits, and the private sector. The week-long festival consists of events like community conferences, events, and parties, and it's anchored by FedTalks, the largest annual gathering of the top 1,000 C-level leaders from the GovTech community. For more information, check out dccloudweek.com. Let's go. Welcome to Securiosity for May 17th. I'm Greg Otto. And I'm Jen O'Daniel once again bringing you the best wrap-up of InfoSec News. Remember last week when there was just a mountain of news? Yeah, this week blew the doors off last week. I mean, there wasn't an operating system, enterprise server, router, cyber criminal, or government agency that failed to make news. Buckle up. This one's going to be a long one. And in our interview, we talk with ID Expert CEO Tom Kelly. Tom recently wrote an op-ed on why the government needs to do more with Facebook's privacy policies and what his company is doing to protect people on social media. No, I was serious about the news. WhatsApp, (laughs) Microsoft RDP, international criminal stings, Intel chip flaws. It was an absolutely absurd week for news. Let's get all to it. Sounds exciting. A clickless vulnerability in WhatsApp developed by spyware vendor NSO Group infects a WhatsApp user's phone via a call. The Financial Times reported Monday. The vulnerability in WhatsApp, used by 1.5 billion people, works on iPhone and Android and doesn't require a user to answer the phone to spread, according to the report. Amnesty International and other rights groups filed a petition Tuesday against an Israeli company to revoke its export license. That comes after the company's Pegasus surveillance software was reportedly used to target an Amnesty researcher. Human rights groups and security researchers say NSO Group Spyware has been used to surveil journalists and members of civil society in multiple countries. The Israeli vendor says that it only sells its surveillance tools to vetted government customers and that it investigates any cases of misuse. So, Greg, do I need to worry about WhatsApp or NSO Group? You and along with, like, 99.9% of people out there don't need to worry about NSO group. I would say of of anybody, I myself probably have more to worry about, and I couch well, that by saying, yeah, yeah. I, that's only because of my profession, and I don't think I'm going to be targeted by NSO group at any time soon. Um, that being said, WhatsApp pushed an update when this was found a couple weeks ago. So if you use WhatsApp, definitely update it just because you want to be able to have the most secure platform out there. So that's just good hygiene. But it's not a threat for the wide majority of people out there. Now, that being said, this is still pretty dangerous behavior and it's something that NSO group has battled now for months if not years and it's not great it's not great that Amnesty International and Citizen Lab they do all of this research in NSO group and all of the the vendors that deal with uh, mobile surveillance and zero days that try to you know pop people's phones and Oh, lo and behold, look, Amnesty researchers and Citizens Lab researchers are now being targeted by the very malware that they're doing research on. Like, hmm, uh, how? it's just some grand coincidence that, that there are uh, governments and companies out there that are now looking to target these people. So 
I think what the real takeaway from this story is is that there is just not a lot of oversight into how these tools are being used and something needs to happen, which speaks to the fact that Amnesty and Citizens Lab and I, I think there are a couple others are really, really weighing on Israeli courts to try to get the export controls taken away from NSO Group because, look, this stuff is dangerous. Um, there's a really, really good documentary. I want to say like a short documentary or like just like a half an hour television episode. It was really, really interesting because this dropped as soon as the Financial Times story dropped and the petition to have the export license revoked. Al Jazeera English put out like a documentary on what exactly has happened due to NSO Group's development of Pegasus and it weighs a lot on what has happened in Mexico. This has been reported time and time again, but this is a good episode to put everything into uh, a quick perspective. The Mexican government bought Pegasus and has deployed it against journalists in Mexico. And there's been a lot of just very, very aggressive surveillance on the part of Mexico. And it speaks to the fact that, look, if these tools fall into the wrong hands, they can do a lot of damage very, very easily. They, they, it's a weapon. It's a weapon just like anything else. And there's not a lot of oversight into it the same way there's oversight into missiles or drones or anything like that. So um, the petition is really, really interesting on top of the fact that it's clear that WhatsApp was popped by these guys. And um, something's going to need to happen. It's it's just not looking good for NSO. Okay. And I, and I get that they need to vet. Um, they can just, like, sell it to you or I. They need to sell it to... Um, government customers, but it's not really NSO's business what, like, for instance, Mexico's government uses it for, is it? Well, that's what NSO Group has been saying, and they've been on a PR campaign lately to say just that, saying, look, we try to watch over and make sure that there's no abuse of our platforms or no abuse of our software, and we want to stop terrorism and human trafficking and, you know, a a bunch of other, like, general crime things. But it's, like, it's clear that that's not the case here. Like, this is being abused. This is being abused pretty rampantly when they're not going after criminals. Like, the cases of what we've seen are Mexican journalists and activists in Qatar. And this isn't – this is – Impinging upon human rights more so than it is helping tamp down, like, high-level crimes. Like, that's it's just not the reality of the situation. So I get the argument that you're making, and NSO Group is making that argument as well. So, okay, if you want to make that argument, do a better job of making sure that it doesn't fall into the hands of abusers. Because, look, NSO Group isn't the only company out there that has the skills to sure. make this kind of stuff. There are American companies out there that are probably selling the same things for Five Eyes and for probably. the intelligence companies, yeah. and they're not falling into the hands of abusers. So they're being used for quote-unquote official purposes. At least not that we know of. Well, right. And it just speaks to the whole gray area that goes into this type of malware uh, as well as to what really is the intent and and who are you targeting. And it's – look, somebody's going to have to sit down and say, okay, we've unleashed this 
out into the world. We've kind of opened Pandora's back box here. Let's step back and take a look at the way that this is being used and kind of fine-tune the way that we're either selling this or using this or whatever. I mean, I mean, but again, if you're selling it to um, the government of Mexico and they choose to do something with it, why is it NSO's job to decide that Mexico's government is doing something wrong? I mean, it's not their job. It's, you know, that shouldn't, the Mexican government should be able to do that, right? Reluctant right. wrong officials you're, you're right. or whatever you're, it happens you're, to be. You're absolutely right. It's not upon NSO group to go to Mexico government and go, oh, okay, please don't do anything bad with this. They don't have any control over that. That that's I, I can right. totally understand what you're talking about there. And yes, it is upon uh, the Mexican government not to you know violate those rights, right? Which is which is fine. In, in those in those cases, yes, it's more upon the governments than it is upon NSO group. But when you start to have these civil researchers like that that are that are being well, popped out I mean, of nowhere, clearly, that's that's a line that that is yeah. crossed. These are just. You know, Clearly, a- they sold academics. software to somebody that wasn't right. Right. So I, I think who they said yes. They were. I, I think that you're right. I think the line needs to be drawn there, and I think that that's a good place to draw that line. Is look, we can't if these governments are going to do bad things with our software. There's not a lot that we can do. If it's individual researchers and academics and, and people that are just trying to watch over human rights, and they're the ones having. Uh, you know, Pegasus dropped onto their phones. They're the ones being targeted. Now now we're starting to get into an area where it might be a bridge too far. So I, I think that And that I wonder if that would actually be a line. government customer doing that if that's not somebody else using the software too. Right. Right. No, and this is this is an argument that we're probably going to be talking about for months ahead. This is something that is not yeah. going away. This is something that is definitely, definitely – it's been top of mind um, this week for InfoSec. It's been top of mind for a bunch of researchers, obviously, for, for months, and it's clear that it's, it's going to carry out into um, months and years ahead. So Florida Governor Ron DeSantis said Tuesday that hackers linked to the Russian government attacked two of the state's counties during the 2016 presidential election, expanding on information that was first disclosed last month in the Mueller report. A redacted revert, a redacted version of the report released last month found that Kremlin-backed hackers used a spear phishing campaign to penetrate the computer network of at least one Florida county. DeSantis said at a news conference in Tallahassee that the FBI told him last week that the Russians succeeded in penetrating systems used by election officials in two, yes, two counties. Jen, we're nearly three years from the incident described here. Why can't the government get its story straight? I mean... That kind of leads you to question how many more counties, how many more states were affected. But, you know, probably, you know, the the government chose to stick to their initial story. And, you know, the governor probably has um, a little bit more access into things. And, and he probably came out with what he was told. Yeah, no, absolutely. and uh, But I, I think the governor was you know, kind of at a loss during the the press conference. He seemed to be like, uh, I'm just learning about this now or just learning about this recently. And yeah. I wish I would have known it when it happened uh, or shortly after it happened because, I, I you know, if the, the governor of the state is ultimately the person that is overseeing or, or has jurisdiction to make laws and rules and mandates when it comes to the elections in those states, it's kind of pertinent information if 
two counties have been popped that, oh, okay, maybe that might, you know, help us look at mandates or help us get more funding or maybe I can write a check to make sure that this type of stuff doesn't happen anymore when, again, it's it's 2019 and this is just starting to come out that it's – no, not one because we knew Florida was targeted. But it's not one. It's now two counties. So – why, 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 it's 2019. Why, why is this, like, I'm at a loss for words. Why is this information only coming out now? I mean, I guess it took three years to really look into it and be able to conclude um, what happened. I mean, who knows? I mean, I think you can't just, um, you know, announce something happened um, like this without being able to draw conclusions on, on sort of what happened. Right. Why it took three years, I don't know. Yeah, it. I, I don't know. I'm just at at a loss. I feel like there just needs to. There should have been more done uh, ahead of time in terms of like forensics and getting it out there publicly. You know, it, 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 how much time have we devoted to this very topic? Like, well, it, it's clearly yeah. top of mind for everybody, including lawmakers. And so. maybe they weren't. They didn't want to leak any information or talk about any information that had to do with you know, what essentially was an investigation into um, our president. Yeah. Maybe they were waiting to uh, find a conclusion. I I guess. I don't know. This just seems like such a mess that could have been avoided to me. Oh, absolutely. Um, It's ridiculous to wait so long. So Microsoft released Fixes Tuesday for a warmable remote code execution flaw reminiscent of the vulnerability that allowed WannaCry ransomware to propagate across the Internet. Microsoft has rated the remote desktop services vulnerability as critical. Microsoft also took the unusual step of launching security updates for all users, including unsupported operating systems like XP and Windows 2003, given the risk that attackers could incorporate malware to launch self-propagating attacks exploiting the flaw. Greg, just how bad is this? This, Who's using XP still? This is really, really bad. This is probably of all the the vulnerabilities that were uh, released this week – I would say this was in, in the top three at most, if not the top, um, only because, look, the, the vulnerability allows hackers to install programs, change data, view data, leak data, and it doesn't need, like, any sort of, like, payload or anything like that. If it's exposed to the Internet, they can – attackers can figure out how to exploit it without – the need for launching further malware, which means, you know, users don't have to click on anything. There's no link. There's no document. There's no message box that pops up. There's no social engineering that needs to be done. If you have your RDP instance internet-facing, you're exposed. And that's – I think there was uh, some research done or something found that, like, 3 million remote desktop endpoints are directly exposed to the internet. So – that, that's your attack surface right there. I'm right? actually surprised that number is as low as it is. Well, I think that that number is low because of what this can affect. I mean, there are a number of Windows systems. I mean, that's the big, you know, digital transformation we talk about. And part of digital transformation is the easy part of just updating your systems. So this doesn't affect Windows 8. This doesn't affect Windows 10. It affects... Um, I think Windows 7 and, like you were saying, with the XP and Windows 2003, for Microsoft to launch Basically all the government users of Windows. So all the the security updates for unsupported operating systems. I mean, I think XP was end-of-life 
two, three years ago, and I may be short on that timeline as well. Um, but there are clearly still systems out there that run on it. So Absolutely. that is, yeah, that, I mean, th- that goes to show how legacy tech can get you into trouble without even the need for your users to do anything. The, the self-propagating attacks on legacy systems is something that is really, really bad. And there are just machines out there that there might not be any knowledge internally inside organizations that, oh, this system that we have is still running on this old Windows instance. And oh, by the way, it's it's internet facing. So we need to figure out how, yeah. what, what to do with it. Now, when this was announced, there wasn't any um, real evidence that it had been exploited. And that was like Tuesday. But by Thursday, by Friday, by the time that you're listening to this, I think that there were some advantageous attackers that started putting together some exploits and, and ways to... Um, oh, so it, it started. Uh, the exploit started it after started. it announced. It okay. has started. So this is, again, Fantastic. if you have an RDP that is one of these systems and facing the internet, you, you need to fix this because uh, we all saw what WannaCry did. So it, yeah. there's the possibility to have some wormable issue um, with this. It, it has the possibility of just being awful. So, so we're probably like a week away from seeing something about this on like a Good Morning America and making it sort of a wider spread panic. Well, I don't know that it'll be a widespread panic, but it yeah, the Good Morning America thing will happen when if yeah. we have like Wanna Cry Two or something yeah. like that. Uh, yeah, it, it'll make Good Morning America, and that will be awful for a lot of IT experts out there. <laughs> So researchers from Red Balloon Security have discovered a pair of vulnerabilities in widely used Cisco routers that, when exploited in tandem, could allow a hacker to prevent future software updates to a router along with defeating its secure boot process, which is the process that verifies the integrity of code running on the hardware. Cisco released a security advisory Monday for one of the vulnerabilities and said it wasn't aware of any malicious use of that flaw. Researchers have dubbed this firmware-related vulnerability and forgive me if this is the wrong pronunciation, Thrangry Cat. Jen, is this the worst vulnerability name you've ever heard? <laughs> That's actually really terrible. So <laughs> I, I will have to say that in the advisory that was put out by researchers too, that even though they named it this, they said we prefer if everybody refers to this in in their copy or their technical reports. With three angry cat emojis. Oh, okay. So it's to be three angry cats. Okay. That's Which is obviously ridiculous. Like, can you imagine on, like, an actual, like, SEC filing or quarterly filings where three cat emojis... In, in the report saying, oh, that this knocked our earnings off I mean, because our IT systems were saying, <laughs> Please what tell are we talking me about that here? you um, wrote an article and you put, instead of spelling that out, you put emojis? Nope, absolutely not. Oh, no, come on. Not, not doing it. Come on. Absolutely not not doing it. But, um, no, that aside, this is – I, I talked to some people about this and I would say that below the RDP problem that this one is probably second – only because the Cisco advisory that was put out said one of the vulnerabilities is actually going to need somebody on site to fix really? it. Like like sending out a technician, like an actual technician to go fix your boxes, which is just – I mean they're better off sending out wild. just new just boxes. Just buying a new box, yeah. right. Uh, honestly, just buying a new box. Um, How many of these Cisco routers are out there that have this vulnerability? Tons. 
tons. I talked to I talked to somebody this week that was in the ICS space and just in just in the ICS space, this person that I talked to said, This is going to be something that we're dealing with for the next decade. Because wow. who's because who's going to spend the the money when you have no instance of that flaw being exploited? And the machines work, and maybe your budget's tight. Like who? Do, it, it's just a risk thing. It's okay. We're going to take that risk That's to have that out there. And yeah, it, it's a lot. It's it's pretty bad. Um, that yeah. I mean, this boot process is you, like it. Like we said, it verifies the integrity of the code running on the hardware. So let's say somebody exploits that. Well. If you can mess with the ver- verification of the code, there's nothing that you can do to say that oh, this code's bad on there. So your machine might be busted and might be an entry point in for hackers and you'll never know because the integrity of the code has been changed and the machine's acting fine. So decade-long problem ahead here unless uh, you want to call your local Cisco technician and tell them to get out there and fix it. So and I think even that, even that <laughs> request is months away. Wow. According to Cisco. Wow. So yeah. That's this, again, again th- Like we said, this week, tremendously bad news all over the place. Wow. So if the 2018 meltdown and Spectre chip flaws were the dawn of a new era of hardware vulnerability discovery, the next phase was written Tuesday when Intel and independent security research revealed four new computer chip-based attacks that exploit the same speculative execution process as Meltdown and Spectra. Like Meltdown and Spectra, there isn't evidence that these attacks have been executed in the wild, but the insecurities they reveal in micro architectures demand attention from hardware owners. So what are these fancy exploited names and what do they do? Okay, so we have three new names. All right. All, uh, well, there are four. There are, I, I believe it's just three, maybe three or four. I, I don't know. This one is also pretty bad. Um, you can check out the names on the conveniently named website cpu.fail, which is where some of, which awesome. is where all of the, the exploits are written about. One's called Zombie Load. Zombie Load allows a attacker to pull private browsing history and other sensitive data after um, you know it's been long gone it pulls them off uh, oh, operating systems uh, virtual machines in the cloud um, so pretty much everywhere um, one called uh, it's I'll just say RIDL which allows data to leak across different security domains on uh, on the kernel level different buffers line pull buffers load ports really really technical stuff but can hit applications, the OS level, other virtual machines, trusted execution environments. Does that stand for something, or do they mean it, it to does. like Riddle or something? No, um, it stands for RIDL, Rogue In-Flight Data Load, which sounds like an extremely, extremely technical term. Yeah. That I'm, I'm sorry. I, I do not have the level to understand what exactly that term means. And then Fallout, which allows uh, read data on operating systems recently wrote, and you can figure out memory positions of OS strengthening. Other attacks basically allows another door into the operating system at the kernel level, and you can pull all different types of memory. So when... Cool. Yeah. When uh, Spectre and Meltdown occurred, everybody sort of lose, lost their minds uh, saying that... It, the, the patches that were going to be out there were going to slow down performance, and if you didn't patch, you were going to have uh, the ability to, you know, just pull memory um, out of what is supposed to be secure enclaves. Um, 
Yeah, we got three more of them now. So um, Intel is trying to work on fixes. Uh, security researchers kind of teamed with Intel on this. Intel had been working on it but never gave hints that this was coming. But at least this time they were aware of the process and actually did some work to try to uh, discover this stuff. Um, yeah, another one of these stories, the the third story this week where this <laughs> is going to be not just a quick fix. This is something that's going to yeah. be for months, if not years. And watch out for those patches because they're going to be coming uh, from Intel as well. And Intel's taken it on the chin with this type of stuff too. I would not be surprised if we start to see something similar when it comes to AMD and ARM chips. I mean, it, it, every piece of hardware, it seems like, has its own issues now. So I wouldn't be surprised if we see more and more in the coming years. So from hardware back to the software, researchers have uncovered a years-long disinformation campaign in which suspected Iranian operatives masqueraded as well-known international media outlets and used fake Twitter accounts to amplify fabricated news articles. The group, dubbed Endless Mayfly, published some 135 news articles on sites meant to look like The Atlantic, Politico, and others, according to research from Citizen Lab. The group impersonated outlets via a technique known as typo-squatting, and the efforts demonstrate how propagandists have adopted the SEO and social media tactics that legitimate media outlets and other organizations have implemented to increase audience engagement. Jen, did you think banking domain names would actually be a good piece of security hygiene? (laughs) That's funny. Now, why, if you're at the Atlantic, why don't you own um, all sort of the misspellings of your domain? That was the surprising part uh, to me of this research. Um, The fact that, uh, look, the Atlantic has its own technology team, has its own security team. Um, but yeah, it was um, outlets that were very, very similar in terms of web address, where it was, I think, instead of the A-T-L-A-N-T-I-C, it was like A-L-T-A-N-T-I-C. So just very, very little stuff that I know there are other outlets out there that, that have – you know, gobble up all of these domains. It seems just I mean, like it's not seems almost yeah. yeah. It, it seems just like a basic uh, security practice at this point, and something that you need to do when it comes to the costs of um, you know your security plan. Yeah. But no typo squatting. Um, yeah, I mean, and it's really been around for a while. That's the thing that is so surprising to me. We're talking like ten or fifteen years. I mean, we've all seen the demos where PayPal has the A with the serif because there's a way to, there's actually a um, symbol that looks like you know almost like a cursive A as compared to just a normal A that you would type if you hit an A on a keyboard. Uh, that that's how PayPal was. Used in, yeah. in, yeah, spoofed, and that's how typo squatting kind of came into the the vernacular. Yeah, I'm, I'm I'm surprised that the Atlantic wouldn't have done more on this. So, hey, if you're out there, and it's not just a media thing overall. They, this should be if you have a big enough company where you think that you, you know you're going to have somebody try to fish or spoof mm-hmm. your customers or something like that. Go out and buy those domains that look like your name because you yeah. want to make sure that it doesn't happen and it will happen if you don't pay attention to this. So go buy those those weird domains. So Twitter says it collected and shared location data from customers using Apple devices that shared that information with an advertising partner. 
The announcement says Twitter intended to remove location data from the data sent to ad partners during the real-time bidding process, a profitable model which typically involves ad buyers purchasing ad space within milliseconds. But the social media company instead opted to fuzz the data so that it was no more precise than a zip code. The collected data was not retained and existed on Twitter systems for only a short time, the company said. Twitter has informed the users whose accounts were affected. Greg, is this a big deal? It doesn't seem like a big deal to me. No, not this week. I'll tell you what. Um, it just seems like, uh, I mean, Twitter was being transparent in that they kind of messed up with the way they handled the data. I'm sure there are companies out there that everybody uses that does worse and doesn't tell anybody. Like yeah. it's one of those things like, oh, okay, my 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 data's out there floating around again. Via oh, sweet, code, sweet, yeah. yeah. The, the, like that hasn't happened tens of millions of times over the past five to seven years. So, I guess good on Twitter for letting this you know fly out there and being transparent about it. But compared with everything else that happened this week, no, <laughs> carry on. So some big business news this week, CrowdStrike, the security vendor best known for investigating the 2016 data breach at the DNC, aims to raise as much as $100 million in its forthcoming IPO, according to a regulatory filing submitted to the SEC earlier this week. In the fiscal year that ended on January 31st, the company reported a 140 $1.1 million net loss on $249.8 million in revenue, and most of the firm's revenue dollars came from its more than 2,500 subscriptions, though those incoming dollars are balanced by a motivation for growth, as sales and marketing spending climbed 66% to $172 million last year. That's interesting. Do you feel like there's enough potential customers to sort of become bigger than the loss, being able to sort of pick it up and be profitable? That's a very, very good question because I think that they're heading into a crowded market. I mean, Symantec's out there, Palo Alto, just uh, if they didn't, I I think they recently IPO'd. I I may be wildly wrong on that, but Palo Alto's still a competitor. Tenable is another one that just recently IPO'd. Um, So these companies are all growing up and they're all competing for, I mean, the huge enterprise customers will really just gobbling up any sort of customers uh, that are out there. Uh, FireEye, too, um, I think in their recent statements said things along the lines of like we're getting closer and closer and closer to profitability. So FireEye may be a – different case as compared to all of these different companies. But hey, I mean, isn't that the challenge for all of these companies going private to public? That, that That's just like what we're seeing in the tech space right now. I mean, look what happened with Uber as well. Uber pretty much put out its S1 and was like, yeah, we're, we're going to be losing money for a while. But hasn't that been really the mantra in this great startup tech rush. It's, I mean, it is. It's burn through money. Don't worry about growth. The growth will come once we get to the public side of things. So just keep I mean, doing maybe, what you do. But I mean, even if you, you go back and look at like an Uber or whatever, I mean, just on the news or whatever you had, um, Uber drivers talking about, they don't even make five bucks an hour um, when they're driving Uber. So it's sort of, you know, IPOing and showing such a great loss in, in, in revenue just... Seems crazy to me. Yeah. Um, I 
Look, we recently talked to uh, Dimitri. He was in our offices, and while he didn't talk a lot about business, obviously, because sure, sure, you, you know, you stay quiet uh, in these areas. He, he talked a lot about you know the research that CrowdStrike has done and the visibility that they have into um, you know the networks uh, that their customers sit on. And look, their research has always been really, really good, and they helped with the the, the DNC hack. A lot of what we know about what happened there came from from CrowdStrike. So. Look, they I'm do not good arguing. Work. Yeah, they, 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 they do, do good work. work. It's a great business. They do it's great, a great company, work. But I, I guess I'm just really thinking about economics here. Um, you know, as the company gets this big, how much more market share could they really get? Is the market really growing that fast to to make up for this loss? Yeah. On to more exciting um, venture rounds. Yeah. Okay. So on the venture side of things, uh, Respond Software, a cybersecurity platform that automates decision making through emulating human reasoning, has raised $20 million in a Series B funded by Clear Sky Security with help from CRV and Foundation Capital. The company was founded in 2016 and touts its robotic decision automation software that combines the best of human judgment with the scale and consistency depth of analysis of the software. It uses quote-unquote decision bots that work out of the box. No need to train the system or implement any rules uh, to scripts. So, Jen, what do you think about this company? I mean, I think it's really exciting. Um, That said, I think they continually have to do a lot of work because if you're truly having decisions made by bots, um, it's only a matter of time before um, those bots are sort of figured out by what you're trying to control with them, um, and they find their workarounds. Right. Yeah. Um, it, it, it just gets into the whole AI, like, do do we really need it, and is it really going to be the game changer that a bunch of people think um, that, you know, that's going to happen? And I don't necessarily – not that this – not that it's this company's fault. I think this is really, really interesting, and it's one of these companies that is trying to find a different way to clear, like, the low-level brush that security analysts deal with so they can get to, you know, deeper problems that actually take that human touch to fix. But um, okay. I, 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 don't, I don't know – if there's a very high ceiling for this type of technology. See, I mean, I think it's, I think it's exciting in that, you know, unfortunately, but I think what we're going to see if companies are going to deploy this, they're going to decide, oh, we don't have to hire, you know, 14 people or, you know, we can let some people go or it matters a little bit less. And, and I argue that you still need those 14 people. It's just that this is a great first level of getting like the low hanging fruit taken care of right um and and being able to have somebody to like check over that make sure it works but also you know continue on you know normal course of business too with what they've always done and and hopefully more right right yeah so we essentially agree on on that yeah the the low-hanging fruit is definitely something that needs to be cleared away because so many times security analysts get bogged down in running through Splunk or searching through log data or, you know, and it's just, that's not helping. So anybody that's trying to figure this out, that's great. I I personally just don't know how high the ceiling is ever going to be for this type of stuff. Like, I don't think you're ever going to see some of these companies become like unicorns. Probably not. Hey, did you ever watch the um, crypto movie? I did not. Not yet. I know it's on video on demand. Um, I need to see it. 
we have a long weekend coming up for Memorial Day, so I should be able to carve away some time. I am desperate to see it because I know that there have been some people close to the movie after we did our podcast that were uh, oh, chirping yeah. at chirping at us on Twitter. Um, so hey, maybe they learned something about cybersecurity. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> hey, they learned about not you know rolling folders out there for people to see that says crimes committed, crimes to be committed. <laughs> So I, I will still say that that's an awful plot hole, and I don't care. The movie may be w- one of the uh, unsung gems of the decade. That's well, it that's went a terrible to the video, scene, so. right? Right. I'm not going to hold my breath on that point. <laughs> but no, you bring up a good point. I need to see it. I think we both. I think yeah. we both need to see it and report back uh, and, and do like a segment on what we thought about oh, the movie. Absolutely. Yeah. But in the meantime. Uh, we're going to go to our interview with Tom Kelly, but before that, if you have been to one of our events, you know we're not your typical cybersecurity conference, so we're taking our show on the road again this year. From September 16th to 20th, we will be hosting New York Cyber Week in New York City. The week, as always, is about big ideas, big talks, and doing something impactful for the greater good of technology. Register now to join 60-plus community events around the Big Apple, and for more information on what we have planned, check out NewYorkCyberWeek.com. Okay, now joining us is Tom Kelly, CEO of ID Experts. We have him here in the CyberScoop offices. Tom, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Tom, tell us more about ID Experts. Well, ID Experts is a breach response company. So, what's that mean when I say that? Um, we don't do uh, we don't go into the breach and do the forensics. Although we're connected with a lot of forensics companies and assist in that, we go in and. Uh, respond to the breach and ways to protect those who've been impacted. So we do a lot of work with the federal government, state governments, locals, uh, universities, large enterprises. Last year we touched 30 million people, to give you an idea of our scope and our size in terms of the impact. And it also tells you the kinds of breaches and the, and the extent of breach, uh, breaches out there and how it's become very personal for people. Uh, and what's the damage that we usually try to protect against? It's uh, everything from identity protection uh, identity protection in the financial area, but also in the legal area, up to and including, uh, up to including, uh, you know, uh, sex offender registers. I mean, up to wide ranges of things, depending on the type of breach and the type of uh, coverages. In the last year or so, we have moved to taking what our product, which has traditionally been delivered to the customers, uh, or I should say, the the impacted people in enterprises, we're now taking that uh, on a consumer basis, but doing it with partners. And uh, we've expanded our footprint uh, heavily to look at privacy, and in particular, social media, social media uh, monitoring, and how does somebody keep their, you know, get their arms around what's going on in social media and how it affects them, and up to and including the threats that come from uh, viruses and and uh, malware and phishing and everything else. So on the social media front, your company just released some research about people's attitudes towards social media. Tell us a little bit about it and what you can pull from it. Uh, it's, it is, um, the, the work we did kind of confirmed almost what I would say your instincts. If you would say, uh, in a funny sort of a way, everybody says that there's threats in social media, but usually they say it's for somebody else than themselves. I mean, it's a hubris that, oh, everybody else is at risk, but I'm probably not at risk because my behavior, uh, my behavior doesn't bring it. So what are the areas that people also tend to agree on? Seniors acknowledge that they are more at risk than others, that they, they seem to believe that they're at risk and using the platform. But they're also, we didn't see a lot of evidence that people are leaving social media because of the risks. 
In fact, 65 percent of the people said, you know, I know there's risks, but it hasn't caused me to depart uh, social media. Uh, the millennials say that there's risk, but they think the most significant risk uh, is for teenagers, which is interesting because they were recent, most recently, if you think of the groups that we looked at, most recently in that category of teenagers. Um, the heaviest users of social media seem to be in that sandwich generation, that you know, uh, up to and including the baby boomers uh, uh, utilizing that. And, uh, and, and then, of course, you've got the, you know, the definition of what are the different platforms that people are utilizing in social media. So you know, this, this, the data says the following. Everybody recognizes there's a risk. They've identified groups that they think are more likely to be at risk. It seems to be the two groups that everybody seems to agree at risk are seniors. You know, seniors, maybe people are using it a lot and maybe did not grow up with a lot of tech-savvy, you know, instincts. And kids, you know, uh, teenagers, because uh, like a lot of us when we were teenagers, you're not thinking about risk. You, 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 you know, that's just not something that usually goes, the word teen and teenage years usually doesn't go with risk in terms of the teenager thinking right. about it. We were sure. indestructible. Every generation, <laughs> every generation, I, I believed I was indestructible. I'll bet you, you guys believed you were indestructible. It's, you know, it's, this is, that goes generation to generation. So that, that's what we're seeing in this. So your, your survey said that 92% of seniors are at risk and three quarters of adults are at risk. So at risk for exactly what? Well, <clears throat> what are the kinds of risks that are out there? Let's talk about it. Uh, let's start with the, at the highest level, at a high level. We all know about risks in email for phishing. You know, phishing where, right. in fact, you're invited to do something. You're invited to pull in. And these, you know, the email phishing scams are getting, you know, are pretty sophisticated. You know, mm -hmm. you've got to be very alert not to click on something and find yourself, darn it, I've done it. You know, I'm in it. Social media now is becoming uh, a big platform for phishing. And, and also because it's coming, once again, from people that you think you know. That, or at least it's purported to that you know. It's also coming from uh, that phishing is oftentimes designed to either pass malware to your platform that can be used, uh, you know, whether it's ransom or other kinds of, or it could just be good old fashioned, what I call uh, cyber graffiti. I'm going to do it just because I'm going to wreck some havoc. I mean, it's, there's not always a, an extortion aspect of, uh, in, the, in the cyber cyber crime. It's also the area of of misusing misusing your your identity to make profit, stealing your your social presence in some way to uh, to continue that. So that's the probably the number one. Then puts the other areas, posting information that on second thought I shouldn't have. I call happens all the time. Yeah, and so this is what this is where I get into. And I say, I'm a big believer in the word forgiveness. I always have been. I think you know if I didn't get a lot of forgiveness as I was growing up and over the years. You know, I'd be in another place probably right now. The, uh, you know, we do things sometimes on the spur of the moment. You say, why did you do that? I wasn't really thinking. Now you do that, and it's recorded for posterity. And, and everybody, gets to, everybody gets to see that, that you weren't thinking, and you're as embarrassed about it as anybody else. Then there's other people that are putting stuff into your accounts, uh, whether it's uh, objectionable language, objectionable material, things that you don't want associated with yourself. These are all the risks, and you can go on and on. I mean, we have examples of people posting their driver's license on Facebook. Uh -huh. no, it's, it's, you know, just, just say, what were they thinking? And, of course, the answer is always, they weren't. Right. And, well, and it's, they don't process 
why that might be an issue. Because it's funny you bring up the driver's license thing. I've had a family member, I think this might have been four or five years ago, they were happy they bought a new car. And they actually were taking photos of the car and in one of the photos that they put in a photo album on Facebook, the VIN number of the car is actually <laughs> visible in the picture. So I picked up the phone and said, what are you doing? Like I was, I was probably a little bit more forceful than I should have been. But I was like, what are you doing? Like, this is really, really bad. And it just never, like, they were insulted that I was kind of forceful with that and yeah. called them out. They were like, what are you talking about? I'm just posting a photo on Facebook. It, it really doesn't occur for some people that there is just this information out there that can be leveraged against them. Absolutely. And so have you ever driven behind what I call the little family wagon? It's got the picture of the little images. It's got mom and dad, the do, you know, the, the, stick the, little, figures, the, yeah. the stick figures, and then the dog and the cat. You know, I'm getting a lot of information sitting behind this car. And it Seriously. also says, you know, it shows the universities. There. You know, I'm sitting behind this car, and I'm, I've got a whole profile on what's in front of me. Now, take that to uh, Facebook. You know, there was a time where we'd go on vacation. And you'd call your neighbors and say, hey, we're going to be gone. Hey, would somebody mind putting out the trash can for me or bringing them back in? You'd stop the paper from being delivered. Think, just the normal things. You maybe have a timer code with light going on and off like that. Just kind of normal. Now, you take a picture of the whole family headed to the airport, getting on there. We're going to be gone for two weeks. You know, And, of course, all that other information on where you live, who's there. Please rob it's my a, house. It's, yeah, no, right. it's got it. It's, it's, like, it's like you go back to the old days before Facebook. We're going to put a sign up saying, we're not here. We won't be back for a couple weeks. If you enter, please, you know, lock behind the door as you, you, know, as you leave. It's, uh, you know, it's, uh, these are the kinds of threats that are out there. And, and you know, and we can just go on and on and think of the examples. Um, and, of course, the, uh, the story that we were talking about prior to, uh, um, prior to starting our discussion here, that, that tragic event that occurred in Malaysia. And it's not the only place where things like this happen. That 16-year-old girl who, uh, who ends up committing suicide after posting on Instagram uh, a poll that said, uh, posting on Instagram a poll that said, uh, should I, you know, choose D or L, you know, death or life? And, and they came back and said death. I mean, this is, th we can go on and on. Uh, sexting for kids, uh, abuse of children, uh, bullying. I mean, uh, these are, the, the social media platforms are, are, are dangerous places. They can be, they can be terrific benefits, but they can be also very dangerous. So another part of the survey found that people are searching more and more for, for tools that can help them guard against any sort of privacy violations on social media platforms. And it seems like you might have an option for them. Tell us a little bit about Social Sentry. Right. Social Sentry is a, uh, a product. One of the first things, um, uh, privacy is a very big thing for me. Personally, okay. I, I just think I, you know, I think the hallmark of a of a free society is some level of privacy, the the ability to say of choosing what I'm going to share and what I'm not going to share, and how that information about my life or my world is going to be used one way or another. I should have some right, some say on that, and uh, and of course, in all these free platforms, uh, Facebook, Google, others, Instagram, uh, who's the product? What's the product? Uh, you are. You're the product, of course. okay? And, and, and people need to be reminded of that, that we are the product when we enter one of those free platforms. 
So we've created, we, we've brought to market here a product called Social Sentry, and what it does is the following. It monitors your social media accounts. It can monitor it for language, behavior, language content that you find that you don't want in there. Uh, you know, whether it's, you know, word-based, uh, word you, can, you can monitor uh, and search for uh, behaviors that would indicate possible harm for a child. You know, if you've got a child in your family that's on social media, uh, you can monitor that account at a, at, uh, under the age of 18. You can monitor, monitor that account and look for things that would indicate uh, harmful behavior. Uh, the obvious things like words like suicide or death or other things would come together, but also things that would indicate that they're exposing themselves and putting themselves at risk uh, for, for, uh, for adults or others to, to, to get access to them, you know, sexting behavior and things like that. Things that you, as a, as a, you'd be worried about a child that, you know, as I said, we think we're indestructible at certain ages, and, and certainly at that age for sure. Uh, it, can, it monitors for phishing, it monitors for malware. Uh, it looks for somebody who's co-opted your identity on, on, uh, on a social platform, because I don't know if you've read recently, uh, I think the Wall Street Journal ran a, an article about the fact that uh, celebrities are getting more concerned about their, their, their brand, their identity, essentially being co-opted for, uh, for, 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 for bad use, right. for, for illicit use. Um, we can monitor all that and you get alerts. And, but what's the important thing is you can actually then with this product take information down. You can cleanse accounts out there, you can remove certain information, you can block things, and you can actually take down, uh, take down information. So here's a good example. Uh, you go, uh, uh, and this is one where I say, you know, we'll call self, we have self-inflicted wounds in, 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 the, in the social media world, and then we have ones that are threats from the outside. Self-inflicted. Well, I'm down in Cabo and it's college and I'm dancing on top of the table and I'm having a great time and I'm posting all this and, you know, and maybe I don't look exactly the way I want to look for that great Have you been stalking me on social media? Yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> that great that job interview I'm going to have here where, in fact, uh, yeah, uh, or I said something in high school and posted it on my account and I'm not sure I want that college recruiter to see some of those things. And it was stupid. It was, it was dumb. It was stupid. I recognize that. And so these are opportunities to look at some content and get some of that stuff out of there. So it's not only to alert yourself to people, uh, threats that are coming from the outside, it also gives you a chance to monitor your own account, monitor your own behavior. You know, you put it out there. And you know, the fact is, uh, that's not a bad thing, uh, to have the ability to hit pause and maybe rewind. A rewind and erase, you know. Uh, these are, these are in, uh, it gets back to this forgiveness concept. You know, we should have the opportunity not to, every time you, you foul up, that it haunts you for the rest of your life. So you also um, wrote an op-ed for CyberScoop about the way that lawmakers are treating Facebook. Tell us more about that. Well, I, um, I'm probably out there on some of my views on, um, on the social media platforms, as well as, say, some of the search engines. Uh, there has to be, I'm a believer in, in self-regulation. I'm a tech guy. I've been in the tech industry uh, for all my life, all my adult life. I've been in the tech industry, and um, and so from semiconductors to software, mostly software and services, I believe in self-regulation. I don't think I don't like the idea of government messing around. But when you have almost monopolistic presences out there today, you can't rely upon competition. It's apparent. To, to, to regulate, and competition is the ultimate, the ultimate regulation. Innovation and competition. These platforms have outsized uh, market influences right now, and there's not one shred of evidence that Facebook, for example, is gonna change its behavior. 
Notwithstanding the words that are coming out of some of the executives' mouths there, there's not one shred of evidence. Their business model, their business model is designed to mine our data. That is their business model. And so if that's their fundamental business model, how does self-regulation come into it? I don't believe that business model, that is a, you know, it's proven to be an incredibly great uh, uh, a model that creates a lot of uh, shareholder value. And so, uh, so I think that the time for discussion on what form of regulation uh, and what regulation might look like comes into it. You're all familiar with GDPR, which is, uh, so I'm in, I was in Europe uh, the last couple of weeks, and if you go uh, and you use Google in, in there because of the response to GDPR, you get a little thing that comes up and says, hey, I'm agreeing to the Google, uh, you know, this is Google's privacy policy, essentially what they can do with your information or anything else like that. If you don't sign it, guess what? You don't get to use it, okay? Now, if you're a monopoly, that doesn't sound to me like uh, good, uh, good uh, privacy regulation because the whole concept behind GDPR is transparency. Right. And so if the choice is, here's the transparency, well, if you don't want to use it, too bad, don't. And by the way, no place else you can go. I, I, I think uh, we're seeing behaviors that remind me of what it, literally uh, the old uh, Standard Oil, U.S. Steel, the steel towns that paid you in script and you had to buy the, you know, buy your script at the local, uh, uh, everything was right there, you had no uh -huh. choice and there was no power. So uh, the time for the discussion has come. I think we need this discussion and I do not believe we'll see any self-regulating behavior out of these entities. So That's what, my opinion. what do you think something should look like if it comes out of Congress? Should it look more like GDPR or should it look more like what California is doing? Or should it look a little bit different since GDPR to me gets at the heart of you know Fortune 500 and enterprise companies and that's fine in the business world, but Facebook is so consumer-facing right. that I'm wondering if GDPR is a little too verbose for what yeah, really it, needs to happen. And it, you, you hit exactly, you know, you can, you can regulate everything, but you know, the fact is, to understand the power of these platforms, the average individual is not schooled in these areas, and under you know they, they don't really understand that you know that every time they enter in there, their behavior is being mined, and these algorithms that are used to mine that behavior is pretty substantial. So, some of it's going to be education, okay? Some of it's going to have to be transparency. Who knows? Maybe it's going to be a red banner that flashes across Facebook that says, "Oh, and I log in," that says, you know, like a cigarette ad or you know, the Surgeon General or. We're advising you, we're advising you, if you go in there, by the way, if you use this platform, the following things could happen to you. Not only could, but will likely happen to you. Now, granted, Facebook sure as hell wouldn't want that on their, <laughs> their platform, but, uh, but I do believe the dialogue needs to be had, and the, the concern you're raising is a good question, is what should it look like? The California legislation is very similar to GDPR, uh, and, and I think transparency and education and competition, those things are always, innovation, competition, transparency, understanding, those are always the ingredients to, uh, to managing this. But the problem I have is their outsized market va uh, capability and no evidence that they're gonna fix it themselves, none. So they're staring, Facebook is staring down at a $5 billion fine from the FTC, at least that's what's been rumored. Do you think that that's a, a good amount? Do you think that that's a smart way to sort of force them to change course? What do you think about what the FTC is supposedly lining up? Fines work 
when they impact market cap and shareholder value. Okay, because I'll tell you, the board will look at that. So if the fine does not actually move the needle, <laughs> if the fine doesn't yeah. move the needle, and so you can, everybody can. Well, sit I think and have after that. the rumors came out that there was five billion, I think their stock actually yeah. went up. So that yeah. might so, need so, to tell you all <laughs> that. Exactly. You know. So, so, so the things that get the attention of, of of decision making and policy at companies are shareholder value impact and legal jeopardy. <laughs> That's that is that is going. You, you, when I say shareholder value, I would say you know something that negatively impacts. Your, your, the communities that you're, that, you're, that you're responsible for, that you have a fiduciary responsibility for. And you have a fiduciary responsibility for shareholders, for employees, for customers, anything that would dramatically impact that gets your attention. And secondarily, legal, legal jeopardy, individual. And so when we craft these, uh, these uh, solutions, we might want to keep that in mind. So five billion, you're right. The stock actually went up. I don't know if that's it. Maybe it's also, you know, we just heard the uh, the announcement that uh, yesterday that Huawei has been put on the uh, entities on, list. On right. the entities list. So you put Huawei on the entities list. That's significant, and you saw some of the movements in the stock market on that because that is significant. That will have. So maybe there are. I don't know what the answer is, but it's not what we're doing today. It's, you know, there's certain, it's not what we're doing today. So my op-ed was intended to be, to start posing the question that we need to have a more vigorous dialogue around this very question. So do you think Mark Zuckerberg and Facebook are actually handling their issues the right way? And do you think Mark actually wants to make the necessary changes? I can't speak for Mark Zuckerberg. You know, okay. uh, I can only speak for my view on it. And uh, my view is that uh, I don't see any evidence that Facebook will self-regulate and change its behavior. <laughs> that's, 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 that's mine. And I'm not talking about the, the, the words or anything else like that today. Their fundamental business model is to mine this. And every time we turn around, we've seen everything from breaches. Um, heck, you saw the Wall Street Journal uh, article earlier this year that talked about the, uh, the apps. Uh, the information in the apps that were being sent over to, to Facebook. Mm -hmm. And they've, of course, expressed complete surprise and how could that have happened? That's not what was intended. But this was highly personal, private information yep. on those apps, medical information that was going over there, and it had nothing to do with whether or not you were a Facebook user. It was just going over there because the software development uh, you know, kit, the SDK, uh, what they were doing with Facebook allowed that transfer of data. And it was, you know, these are... Uh, there's just you don't see any evidence that behavior is following the words or maybe and maybe they'll say well those are old behaviors that we're trying to catch up on I don't you know whatever so you brought up Standard Oil and it leads me to my next question because we know what happened to Standard Oil is uh -huh. so do you believe that Facebook needs to be split apart because there's also been some scuttlebutt within you know DC circles that that could be you know eventually the end game that happens here that Facebook is split up into separate companies uh, if you have that discussion about Facebook, you sure as hell have to have it about Google. So, okay. So <laughs> I'm, I'm, merely, I'm merely saying, if <laughs> no, you're, if you're, you're going totally to right. right. have that discussion about Facebook, there are others that fall into that, that category. <clears throat> and uh, so, you know, size and scale can bring terrific innovation and terrific benefits. No argument. I think that is, and, and size and scale usually comes uh, because companies rightfully are getting rewarded for something innovative that they did, that there's no alternative. But that always has to be balanced with what I call what promotes, you know, what is, is there anything that, that is working against what I call, you know, the greater good? 
just because we can do something, should we be doing it? You know, uh, you know there's all kinds of uh, questions arrive. But so I think the discussion uh, ought to, there ought to be a vigorous discussion on it. I am not opposed. Um, I think the, those decisions for going back to the early days that we just referenced or I referenced, Standard Oil and other, yeah. Uh, there was probably good reasons uh, that there was plenty of people that benefited from that, uh, both competitively, employees, uh, better work environments, all kinds of things that came out of that. Uh, so uh, I am not, I'm not opposed to having that discussion. And, and this is coming from somebody who is really not a big believer in government intervention in many things. So, Tom, to wrap up the interview on Curiosity, we asked everybody a random question. You've been going back and forth, East Coast, West Coast, and you were stuck in a motorcade on the way over here. Would love to hear, what is your least favorite form of travel? My least favorite form of travel? Probably my car, the car. The car? My most favorite form of travel are my legs. I like walking. Okay. I, I like walking. I like riding my bike. Okay. Okay. I like walking and I like riding my bike. Those are probably. In fact, I told Christy uh, on the uh, way over here we were looking at one of these scooters. So I was in Portland. Okay. At my office. Sco is scooter <laughs> rant coming? Are we coming on a scooter rant yes. here? Actually, I, I, my, I got my, some thoughts. My my, ki my kids thought I was just crazy. But you know the fact is, I'm not always wearing a, a blue suit. And so I was leaving uh, my apartment. I keep up there when I'm in town, and I had to get to a dinner. Which and it was. I knew the back roads there. If I walked over there, it was too far. Too close to get call a car. I would have been embarrassed to get an Uber to take me four blocks. But if to walk there, I was going to be another 10 plus minutes later right. than I already was. I already had downloaded the app because I was curious about the app. I won't identify. I'm not going to advertise for the scooter company I used. But I had it, and I walked out the door, and it's sitting right in front of the, right outside the door. And I said, why not? And it was drizzling. It's at night. And, of course, like every other idiot that I, that I worry about, oh yeah, I'm carrying my, I always carry my helmet with me just okay. in case. Yeah, no, uh, the answer is, of course I wasn't with a helmet, I had my, I had a pair of Levi's, I had a pair of Levi's on and a sport coat, and so I got on it and rode it the first time. First of all, it was fun. No, you didn't fall into traffic, fun. did you? What? You didn't fall into traffic, did you? No, no, there was, well, it's for, okay. I, 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 there was a little, there's, it was a quiet set, but I rode around the corner, went down there, and uh, I have to admit, I had fun. That was pretty cool. So I was at South by Southwest and I was in an Uber um, and he said, his, the Uber driver said his favorite game um, during this conference is always to see how many people fall into traffic off the scooters because there's so many people who are riding the scooters for the first time. Yeah, well, I I, uh, I, I actually thought I made a little bit of an impact when I brought it up. Somebody saw me come up and they said they couldn't, they couldn't believe it. Well, you lost your mind? And I took a pic <laughs> I took a picture of it and I was going to, you know, my kids, and right. they, they, have, they think that that's an early sign of dementia. So, yeah, <laughs> and, 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 uh, and that they're going to have to start watching their father now a lot more closely. <laughs> so, wow. Wow. Okay, so. <laughs> that's okay. I like to keep people, I like to keep people thinking. It's, it's funny, you know, we were just talking about how the, the, the younger generation is a little bit warier of social media and they're also warier of the, the scooter. Yeah, the scooter. Oh, I mean, uh, I'm worried too. Well. But I just, I had to, I like checking things off the list that I tried. So anyway, that's my answer on that. Uh, great. Great. Tom, really appreciate you dropping by. Thanks for your insights. Thanks, Thanks very Tom. much. Okay. So thanks again to Tom Kelly. And before we go, another event to tell you about. If you have been to one of our events, you know we're not your typical cybersecurity conference, so we're taking our show on the road again this year. From September 16th to 20th, we'll be hosting New York Cyber Week in New York City. This week, as always, is about big ideas, big talks, and doing something impactful for the greater good of technology. 
Register now to join 60-plus community events around the Big Apple. And for more information on what we have planned, check out nycyberweek.com. And that is it for this week. Stay curious. Stay curious.